Hi, I'm Patrick Polk, but this is not the rules of investing. In this special podcast mini-series, we've taken a deep dive into the uranium market, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. In this final part of the mini-series, I speak to Guy Keller, Portfolio Manager of the Tribeca Nuclear Opportunities Fund. Guy has over 20 years of experience as a commodities analyst and trader, having been Head of Asia Base Metal Trading for Macquarie Group before joining Tribeca in 2017. As the name implies, the Nuclear Opportunities Fund is focused solely on investing in companies involved in the nuclear energy industry, with a particular focus on uranium. In this podcast, we discuss why it's taken this long for uranium prices to improve, the difficulties with bringing planned additional supply online, and he shares his top pick for the sector. In the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in several of the companies discussed in this episode. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of this wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. I hope you enjoy this special episode. Hi, Guy. Welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Our listeners will have heard by now a couple of bits of information, I guess, uh, some some interviews with some uranium company CEOs. But I thought it would be useful as well to get some guidance from somebody who invests in the sector too, rather than just that corporate view. So hoping you can provide that perspective for us. I'm happy to uh, happy to try to help. Yep, yep. it's a, a subject close to my heart. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning, as I often do. When did you first identify that there was a supply and demand imbalance in the uranium market? And why do you think it's taken so long for prices to improve? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, I mean, I, I joined Tribeca Investment Partners uh, to work on the flagship Global Natural Resources Fund. And part of my role there was to uh, look at the every commodity, look at the, the, the fundamentals and form a top-down view to, to get our batting order as to what we liked. And uh, I started with sort of the metals and, and bulks and moved into the energy products. And and uh, and my, my boss <laughs> said to me at the time, you need to look at uranium. And I said, forget about it. I'd like to look at soybean seasonality or something next. <laughs> uh, and uh, because, you know, like I'd sort of sat there for, I mean, this was 2017 and seen seven years of just nothingness in that space. Um, you know, we looked at, we sort of applied the same uh, strategy as to the fundamentals and, and, and I thought the process was broken because it just flagged too, too um, broken um, on on the supply-demand sort of side. So, we you know, we re-ran the numbers and it, it still flagged as interesting, looked at a whole bunch of, Myths and furfies as to why it wasn't priced higher than than, than where it was currently trading uh, was able to discount those. 
Uh, you know, I'd sort of spent 20 plus years trading in commodity markets and physical markets, commodity derivatives. So things like um, inventory and things like that didn't worry me because uh, inventory is only as only as as available as it is available. So <laughs> if there's lots of it around, if it's not available, it, does, it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, we we probably started looking at it 2017. The, the one of the really other things that that got our attention was that from an equity perspective on the uranium miners, uh, it was such a small opportunity set that in our global natural resources fund, when we started trying to build positions, we we were very quickly substantial shareholders in in uh, in a small number of companies, and and uh, uh, and so that was obviously going to keep institutions out for a while, which was which was good because you know they'll, they'll often price out the inefficiencies, um, and so we rolled out the nuclear energy opportunity strategy, which is a smaller um, offshoot uh, of the global natural resources business, and allowed us to get get set. Um, you know, so that's been going sort of almost four years, and and for yes, for for a while there, uh, almost two years, in fact, of that, um, the market wasn't doing what we expected it to do, and um, you know, was that surprising? It, I think it was probably frustrating for for other investors who who were used more used to sort of faster returns, but when we really started scratching the surface, we realised, unlike Iron ore and steel, for example, where there's thousands of steel mills potentially buying iron ore cargoes, in in the uh, the nuclear industry, there's you know one main buyer being utilities um, to uh, to process that uranium into fuel for their reactors uh, on very long term sort of um, viewpoints, and there's not actually that many of them uh, compared to to other commodity buyers. So you know, and we look back and. Compared to in previous bull markets, they move in lockstep largely. You know, they they don't. There's not too many of them sort of rowing the boat out too far from from the pack. So, and and also there was a lot of political uncertainty. There was uncertainty in in the United States around what what was uh, called the Section Two Thirty Two in the Trump era uh, around you know s- supply and 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 scarcity supply um, because the US basically. Consume, is the biggest, largest consumer of, ura- of uranium and wasn't producing very much. Um, you know, there was a whole bunch of other uncertainty around um, Russian supply agreements and European uh, appetite for its nuclear. You know, so that all sort of just allowed people to not do a lot um, in the sector. Last year, we obviously saw with COVID, uh, Cameco and Kazataprom, the two largest um, producers of uranium with T1 assets, um, could tail a whole bunch of supply, and, and that I think was the first shakeup for the sector. Where at the time as well, we saw a lot of supply-related issues in uh, in other commodities as well. And and as the United States pushed through that first wave of COVID, being a large consumer in China, were well ahead of the curve as well. The COVID was 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 affecting some of the more developing countries, which were producing the raw materials. So the market got more comfortable with that. Uh, move for uranium then because it was they were seeing it in copper and iron ore and other things as well, um, and you know it sort of set us up for where we are now. I've spoken with Lee from NextGen extensively about some of the possible unexpected increases in future demand for uranium, but what about the supply side? What are some 
potential supply constraints that you see that aren't currently being considered by many investors or utilities for that matter? Yeah, so the World Nuclear Association um, puts out their their, their biannual um, supply and demand and they just recently released their most recent one. And what I really like about that, um, that um, is probably a bit, doesn't make a lot of sense, but, but what I really like is that they have an assumption that every project that has some sort of feasibility study on it will come to market. And I like that because as a mining investor, I know that's complete and utter <laughs> fabrication. And uh, <laughs> one of the hardest things to do is to bring a greenfield uh, com- a commodity project to, to market regardless. Especially of- in uranium. <laughs> Especially in uranium. And so, you know, I see utilities and I see people modelling that saying, oh, you know, like we, we don't, the, the, the supply deficit disappears. I've got a primary mine supply deficit out to at least 2025. Uh, on just the current number of reactors in circulation, 450 reactors currently consuming uranium every year, providing 10% of the world's electricity, carbon-free, 24-7. There's there's 50-odd reactors being built in in over a dozen countries. And and so when you add them in, the, the primary mine supply deficit gets even larger. Anybody that talks about secondary supply and without going into too many details, if you sort of think of it as like scrap or what it's something like that um you, you know that for a whole bunch of technical reasons is not increasing under any of my models in fact it's decreasing um and and as i said there's a massive assumption that that these projects are going to come to market i mean what they need price for a start and price is not there there's no debt finance available to to, to any project at these prices they need contracts that, that aren't there uh because again you're not going to finance a, a, a 10, 15, 20-year mine at, at, you know, the, the in-situ recovery mines, some of them are, are much lower capex, but you're getting less pounds. But, you know, to, you're not going to spend a billion dollars to bring a uranium mine into, uh, into production uh, in four years' time or five years' time, and you've got no certainty whether the price is going to be $40, $60 or back at 20 Um and, and so, you know, and plus you've got jurisdiction, environment and and community. <laughs> jurisdiction is, is there's a lot of, uh, I mean, the Athabasca Basin is prolific for uranium prospectivity, but it's not that easy to get a project uh, pushed push on jurisdiction and community. Um, you know, you've got African countries where, again, they're probably a, a slightly easier jurisdiction uh, in some ways, but you, you have a whole bunch of other challenges. So, so there's a whole bunch of things that need to go right for uh, for that supply to even meet the current supply deficit, uh, and that's even including when when Cameco bring back Macarthur, which they will at the right price, and Kazataprom, uh, you know, push forward in in bringing some of their production back post 2023, which they also will. There still needs to be um, mines come to market that 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 aren't going to be simple. One of the topics I didn't discuss much with Lee was, on the demand side, that is, was small modular reactors. Could you explain what they are and why they're important for future uranium demand? Yeah, so the traditional reactors in circulation, as I said, the 450-odd now and the 50 being built, are what they call gigascale reactors. And, and generally 
you, you, you would put two or more in in the same area because they're, they're large bills, huge capex, uh, long lead time, uh, and, you know, it, it, to, it, they needed to be large to be com- compete for the capex. Um, the small modular reactors are exactly what they say on the, on the label. They're much smaller. Uh, they're modular. So instead of uh, having to be bespoke, built like a lot of these uh, older uh, technology reactors are, you can build a whole bunch of these things in a factory. Uh, so they're the same. The same for every single one. You can roll them out, bing bang bush, off you go. Uh, so when you're putting them together, there's, 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 you know, there's an it's, it's not probably well, probably simpler than putting IKEA furniture together. Uh, but you know, there's there's a sort of instruction guide to be able to do that. Uh, they're easily replicable. You can put one in in a remote mine site, for example, or in the case of New Scale uh, in in the United States building now, you can put twelve of them in a row. That's really important because that also allows them to be complementary to weather-dependent sources that, that the world is embracing, wind and solar primarily, where when the sun's shining, um, you know, there's a huge demand for the grid mechanism to, to move that solar energy into electricity, which means that all the baseload things like coal, um, gas and nuclear need to pull back. Um, you know, for a big gigastyle plant, for a coal plant, for a gas plants, a bit easier, but for, for large coal plants, that's not so easy. Um, whereas these small modular reactors, you can. So it gives you much more flexibility to, A, build a whole lot of them fast and, and cheaply, and, B, build them to adapt for the energy requirements, as I said, whether it's a city-scale grid or, or a remote mine site. Just recently, Boss Energy released an update kind of discussing some of the current conditions in the market. And it was, it was supposed to be an operational update, but <laughs> ended up discussing market conditions a bit, a bit. Were there any points of interest in that announcement that gave you some insights as to what's happening around the world at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, I mean... One thing, Boss has been a, a, a favourite stock of ours since the very beginning. I mean, that was one of the very first uh, uranium uh, developers that we took a position in and, and very quickly became a substantial shareholder in it at the time. Um, you know, to, to answer the questions earlier, jurisdiction, tick, permitting, tick, community, tick, brownfield, some capex, a brownfield um, restart, so there's some capex, tick, low capex to restart, tick. But more importantly, um, you know, they're at the point now where they are able to talk contracts and they alluded to that in that in that release. There are utilities who have been doing due diligence on them um, as a project uh, to, to ensure that they are able to do what they say they can do um, and, uh, you know, to look at the quality of the uranium coming out as well as the ability to, to, to deliver. And so as a result of that, now that you're seeing the utilities get more interested because of the recent price appreciation in, in the spot price, they are reaching out to a company like Boss and saying, you know, what can you do for us? And I don't think um, Duncan would be necessarily in too much of a hurry to sign away the keys to the farm too cheaply right here. But it's really reassuring that, uh, that, that the, the utilities are recognising, uh, like we recognised four years ago, that these guys will be one, if you know, one of the first 
to market in this in this next cycle, and it's probably definitely the uh, one of the uh, the first in Australia to market uh, to to be providing uranium uh, into this global war on decarbonisation. I know you'd just be taking a guess on this, but what would be your expectations as to what price you'd want or boss would want to see before they'd be looking to make an investment decision? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a really, it's it's a tough one to answer. And, and I think it certainly would come down to, I mean, the, the other problem as well is, is that is the utilities traditionally, they're not just price contracts, um, you know, which is why Cameco always talked to say, you know, it's a blended sort of sales contract because there's a whole bunch of, they're all bilateral, right? So it's basically whatever you, you know, utility A and prospective minor B agree. Um, and so there might be an element of price. There might be an element of sort of collars around that where, uh, you know, boss sort of says, we'll take a minimum of $55 and, and we'll cap it for you at $85. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of ways that they can um, uh, engage in contracting to give uh, any debt financiers comfort that that they are going to get their money back uh, and also keep the equity holders like ourselves happy that they're not giving the keys to the farm away too, too early. So... You know, it's it's hard to sort of say what price um, I'd be happy with because as to to be you know I know the intricacies of these contracts, um, you know, so I'd probably want to look at a little bit more of the as much detail as they could give, which unfortunately is generally not a, not, not a lot because utilities, <laughs> utilities are often often wanting to sign confidentialities and things. Um, but uh, you know, there, there is a balance there, and I think they'll I think they'll strike it. How do you go about uh, constructing a portfolio of, of uranium exposure? I mean, you your fund invests essentially in one in one thing, but of course you still want to try and diversify it in some sense. So, what are the different? I don't know whether it be different incentive prices, different geopolitical alliances. What are the? How how do you think about structuring it to ensure that you're as diversified as you can be? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It is it is a concentrated portfolio in that it is concentrating on on the nuclear sector, and and therefore, you know, we we're mining specialists, so we're always going to to lean or start in the in the mining sector. Um, the reality is, at the moment, the bits in the middle from uranium to utility, there's not very much investable opportunity there. There's some nuclear technologies that that we're keeping an eye on. But yeah, you're right. We're we're focused on uranium miners. So we we obviously, you know, I have built a, a database uh, of cost curve. I I have a, a very clear idea of where, and not not the all in sustaining cost or the C one cost or whatever it is that these guys are wanting, and whatever number's the lowest number that a lot of these <laughs> promoters are uh, will put out there. But but the to the point earlier about the boss. What, at what price would I be happy for them to to be saying that we're locking something in here? Um, but the reality is, it's a it's an interesting sector because there's only a handful of actual producing um, uh, miners at the moment, uh, and of that, there's only a handful of investable ones because some of them are, are privately owned or, or state owned. 
So you're in the weeds there where you're looking at, at brownfield care and maintenance, you know, next to market. And, you know, so within that, there there's a matrix of how much do they need, what price do they need, how many pounds can they bring, um, you know, what other permits do they need. So I've got a mini universe in there, for example, that's separate to everything else because they're obviously going to be the closest to free cash flow, assuming that, that, that um, uh, you know, that, that everything goes right for them to restart, obviously. And then what I do is I break it into, into jurisdictions. So I look at Africa, I look at Canada, I look at USA, um, and, and then I rank within those jurisdictions as to, to what do I like there, um, what do I want to be the heaviest weight in, um, and, and sometimes that may not be the one that I think is going to be first to market, for example. <laughs> it could just be is it undervalued and, 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 and do they have a drill program that's going to be um, successful. So, um, you know, I, I do that and then and then I have a, a sort of explorer's way of looking at it, which is, you know, no jurisdiction. Sorry, there's a reason I don't have Australia projects because there's really only two listed projects, you know, as much as there is a, a, a reasonable spread of ASX opportunity in uranium, there's really only two that have Australian projects and BOSS sits in our care and maintenance, so uh, in Brownfield's care and maintenance um, tab. So, um so you that's know, because a lot of the other projects are uh, overseas, like in Africa and America yeah, and the yeah, like, yeah? Yeah, so they're, yeah, so they're projects either in Africa or if they are in Australia, they're, they're exploring, you know, they're, they're putting drills in, they don't have a resource. Um, and so, uh, so so they'll sit in the Explorers tab. And, you know, in the Explorers tab, I, I own companies in the Explorers tab that if I still own them when they're going into production, then a huge amount of things have gone right. <laughs> I don't expect them to go into production. Um, however, I expect that team to be um, putting some good drill results out and, and moving that project towards, um, you know, as I said, sometimes it's a really long road I see to some of these coming in. However, that doesn't mean I'm not going to own them because there's opportunity there. And, and then, of course, I, I look at the spot exposure as well. So I've got, you know, that uh, the spot vehicle and, and yellow cake, which... Um, give me uh, an ability to to have exposure to the spot price without having to jump through the hoops uh, of owning physical uranium in uh, in Canada, US, or uh, or France, and having to deal with people wondering what I'm going to do with it. You mentioned they're undervalued uh, companies. It seems as though they're few and far between in the sector at the moment, with the equities having recently run very very strongly compared to the spot price. More recently than that, though, in the last kind of few days to a week, uh, there have been some pretty significant pullbacks in some of these equities. Are you starting to see undervalued companies out there on the market again now? Uh, yeah, I'm starting to see what well, I'm, I'm starting to see value come back into companies I like as well. Um, the, the, if, you know, if, if you'd asked me, whether uranium was going to hit fifty dollars in within six weeks of of the Sprott vehicle launching, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, you know, forty dollars, sure, absolutely. I thought that was doable. Uh, and in fact, you know, this is not a video. I've got a COVID beard where I, you know, said I'd shave when I got out of lockdown in Sydney um, because I thought that was going to happen before uranium hit forty dollars. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, and, and that's the that's the reality. People sort of looking at this saying it's over. It it moved vertical in six weeks. And that was no fault of Sprott necessarily, um, because they had to buy pounds because there was demand for the at the market facility, which caused them to issue shares and they had cash, so they have to go and buy pounds, right? So that was the market rushing in through that door, um, as well as some of those sort of, you know, um, uh, social media outlets, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, trading platforms or whatever you want to call them in the US, uh, without naming them necessarily to give them airtime, you know, they came rushing into to a very small door as well. Um, so... You know, of course, was I sitting there uh, taking some cream off the portfolio as, as that was happening? Absolutely. Why? Because now I've got an opportunity <laughs> to reload some of those names I liked, locked in some profit because there was just almost maniacal buying. Um, and, uh, you know, so I said at the time, I think it was unfortunate that they came in so early to the thesis. Um, however, in a way, it's it's showing the market how easily this sector can move because it's so small. I mean, you've got to remember, right, the global market cap of the investable uranium miners is, I don't know, 30 to 35 billion US dollars, you know, and, and that those miners are responsible for the fuel to fuel 10% of the global electricity, you know, nuclear power is 10% of the world's electricity, uh, you know, plus all the the low-carbon benefits and blah, blah, blah. But the whole investable universe globally fits inside the market cap of Fortescue. <laughs> and, you know, so I think, as I said, I like to take the positive out of it, and and, and the positive is uh, when people decide they need to put money into the sector, it moves really quickly because it's a small door to get through. Uh, so, you know, hopefully now we can see a little bit more of a of a uh, contained um, build of this bull market where, you know, there's still going to be some phenomenal returns, but just doing it in a way where the foundations are built before the roof's gone on. Other than uranium mining companies and the companies that hope to one day (laughs) mine uranium, what are some of the other ways that investors can get exposure to uranium and nuclear energy? Well, I mean, as we said, the the the, the low the lower volatility um, uh, option is to go via the spot proxies uh, for the yellow cake and the and the sprot vehicles. So you're basically plus or minus a small premium discount to the NAV, getting exposure to that spot price movement. Um, you know, so that uh, that that has been there. There's some blunt tools out of North America being ETFs um, that are heavy handed. Um, you know, they there are benefit to the sector when things are going well. They're a, they're a, yeah, a thorn in the side when when you're in drawdown. <laughs> um, and you know, they I'd, I'd say some of the smaller ones are a slightly better representation. But again, you know, they 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 rebalance once a, every six months. They they they're not flexible on their weights. That they you know the weights are the weights. Changes every six months, um, so you know I look at that and say people sort of say to me, "Well, I could just invest in that." Sure, okay. If you want some exposure, great. But if you want an active manager who's basically you know seen almost every equity raise 
um, IPO uh, convert issue in the sector for the last four years and hasn't participated in all of them because they haven't liked them all, but I've seen them all because we're in the market. You know, we're part of a global natural resources business that's been around years uh, and our team within that business have, have also been around years. So we've got the relationships and we've spent the time to build all of those relationships across the broker network, the banker network and and the CEOs of all these companies to be able to say, you know, if there's an opportunity in this space that we think is going to be good, guarantee you we've, there's, there's a, well, can't, you can never guarantee, but there's, there's, a, there's a more than, more than um, good chance that, that we've had an opportunity to put some money into it. Is it still the case, I know it was a while ago, that um, some of those ETFs in America uh, include pretty significant weightings in companies that you wouldn't really think of as being uranium companies? The ones that always stood out to me were BHP and Rio Tinto, which both have some uranium in their in, in their portfolios, but obviously uh, the uranium price doesn't move, move the share price of BHP. Is yeah. that still the case or have they corrected that now? No, no, it's still – so there, there have been some, as I said, the smaller ETFs that popped up in the last two or three years are, are more pure play. But the, the big Global X uh, ETF, yeah, it still has – I mean, it's got Macquarie Bank in it because they've got one person in London trading physical uranium. So, you know, if you, <laughs> if, if you think that the Macquarie Bank uranium trade is doing enough to move that needle – uh, then, then it's a great investment. But yeah, I mean, they've got a whole bunch of Asian conglomerates that, at one stage, built a you know a forge for a reactor forty years ago. I mean, it's it is quite uh, almost comical what's in that one. One more question for you: Keep, keeping valuation in in mind, if you could only hold one uranium company, what would be your first choice? Oh, I mean that's it's it's such a hard question because to be on on song to to where I've been sort of preaching earlier in the uh, in our chat, it, it, I'd have to say boss if I, if I was going to say anything because they it's not a huge amount of money for them to come to market. They're they're at the right end of the cost curve. They tick a whole bunch of boxes with ESG being um, in situ recovery right jurisdictions. So if I was going to bet on one um, that was going to give me some cash flow at some stage, <laughs> it would be them. I mean, you know, you could, I could sort of be lazy and say you own Cameco because they've got a heap of money in the bank. They're the largest, uh, you know, they've got a, an asset they can bring back on, a big asset they can bring back on at the right price, 80 million pounds. But, you know, that's 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 sort of saying... That's sort of like saying you're paying me fees on the Global Natural Resources Fund to be long BHP. Does Cameco actually have much upside exposure to the uranium price? There's been a lot of speculation as to just how much they would be able to participate in a bull market. If if uranium was to go to eighty or a hundred dollars, are they going to get to participate in the full upside? Oh look! I, don't, I mean, I don't think they. I don't think any uranium company ever gets to participate in the full upside of a spot market um, because of the way that they're required to to engage with utilities. Um, you know, the. I mean, you, you saw it in Paladin. It went from four cents to ten dollars on the back of the spot price, 
uh, and then collapsed because the spot price rolled over and Fukushima happened and 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 they had no contract protection. Um, and, you know, I mean, I always, everybody wants to, to tell me how that failed. I said, well, hang on, there was good group of people that made money on the way up. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's a perfect example where the spot market is 1% of, 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 of what's going on in the market. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like 15 years ago where where the iron ore market was 99% long-term contracts and, you know, you waited for BHP to put out their, their, their Japanese sort of price for the year and and that was where you priced on around product spec and maybe there was some flex around demand and supply. But, you know, and, and the last, last, last resort was the spot market. You know, there wasn't too many people saying to BHP at the time, <laughs> hang on, the spot price is higher than the than the, the, the one-year contract you set. Well, you've just left some, left some behind. And I think that's what we have to remember is that until such time as that uranium market prices differently, which I just I don't see it does necessarily because the long lead time from mine mouth to reactor core, you know, you're looking at least two years of of that being of that process, uh, and the mindset of of react of of, of the, the reactor of the nuclear reactor runners, you know, the utilities they're not just running nuclear reactors. They've got it's maybe twenty percent of everything they're doing. They got coal, they got gas, they got weather dependence, you know, they got a whole bunch of hydro maybe. And, you know, they're just saying, don't run out of fuel. <laughs> you know, just keep plugging away 24-7. That's what we want you to do. Well, Guy, thanks very much for chatting to me today. I think that brings us to the end of the, the discussion. I uh, appreciate your insights and um, and thanks for, for telling us all about the uranium market. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. And I'm uh, always happy to chat further. Well, that's the end of this mini series. I hope you found it valuable. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave us a like or a comment.